0: Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be here again. We've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, We took a break from that last week. Uh, But we've been looking at what God had to say to the the church at Corinth and what he has to say to us through Paul's letter to them. Just a little recap from two weeks ago. We went through chapter 11. Paul started out with a commendation for the Corinthian church for remembering him in everything and holding fast to the teachings that he had passed on to them from the Lord. Uh, But then he wanted to give them a clarification. He said, but I want you to know, I want you to understand. And he specifically gave them clarifications concerning the headship order. He pointed back to the creation, to the way God had set things up in the creation order, how that man, Specifically, male was the image and glory of God and woman was the the glory of man. And he also pointed to the relationship between Christ as the son and the father, how that the, the head of Christ is God. And so similarly, the head of man is Christ and the head of woman is man. And then he also pointed them to. The angels saying that when you when you pray or when you prophesy, there is an open line of communication between heaven and earth, between God and and people. And so it's important that we recognize the order that God has established, because all true authority comes from being under God's authority, from, from being in line with God's established order. There is no true authority outside of that. All true authority can only be derived from being in God's perfect order. And then he gives them a not commendation. He says in the following things, I don't commend you. I can't. I, I, I don't offer you any praise for this because when they came together to, to um, participate in the Lord's Supper, what was supposed to be a time of reflecting on Jesus' death, and sacrifice for them and of the oneness that that creates in the body had instead become a time of segregation and division and of humiliating each other and of drunkenness. And in short, he said, when you come together, it's not for better, it's for worse. It'd be better if you guys would just stay at home because you're, you're, not, you're not living in line with what, with what the, the sacrifice and death of Jesus is meant to, to represent when you eat and drink of the Lord's table, you are participating in his life and his death. And if you eat and drink in an unworthy manner without discerning the Lord's body, without discerning the nature of the sacrifice of Jesus and its implications in the body of Christ, you're eating and drinking damnation to yourselves. So he ends that with a call to judgment. Not of each other but of judging ourselves, of looking honestly at our own hearts and judging ourselves so that we would avoid being condemned along with the world. And then he goes into chapter 12, 13, and 14, where he talks to them about the gifts of the Holy Spirit and how the body of Christ is supposed to be functioning together in oneness, in harmony edifying itself, building itself through itself, all of it empowered by one holy spirit. Now there's there's a certain kind of tension that that is present in in 1 Corinthians and throughout the New Testament. I find that there's this tension between what God says about the church, the universal church, and what he says about the church as individual groups of people with our problems and our failings. You know, we're, we're familiar with the verses in Revelation where uh, where Jesus tells the church that you're neither cold or hot, you're lukewarm, I'm, I'm ready to spew you out of my mouth. You look alive, you have an appearance of being alive, but you're actually dead. You tolerate sin and darkness in your midst, and my judgment is going to come on you if you don't repent. And then on the other hand, we have... We have letters like the letter of Ephesians to the church at Ephesians where it says that through the church God makes manifest his, his manifold wisdom. It's on display in the church. That, that the many faceted wisdom of God is on display in the earth through the church. And that Christ loved the church and he gave himself for her so that he might, so that he, he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle. It's the same people he's talking to. So do you see the tension here? And we see this tension throughout the book of of First Corinthians, because Paul Paul is giving them some strong corrections and saying, You guys are really living wrong in a lot of ways. But then he also speaks to them about the, the power of the Holy Spirit that empowers them and that it's one Spirit that's working in them and that it's all It's all working together to build them up into the body that Christ is looking for. So I'm going to read chapter 12. I'm going to quickly read through this. And then we're going to tie that in with chapter 13. And I want to say this about chapter 13. Chapter 13 is often just kind of yanked out of context. And, you know, it's used at at, uh, weddings and whatever. It has all that stuff kind of feel good like all the beautiful things that love is. Chapter 13 is between chapter 12 and chapter 14 not just because of the numerical sequence. Okay? It's there on purpose. It's it's right between a chapter that talks about the gifts that are given to the body and how those function together and a chapter that expounds on that saying what it looks like in a church service. And it's sandwiched in between there because without love all the rest of this is worthless. And, and we're going to look at that this morning and see how we can look at our own lives and see, is is what I'm living out of, is, are my spiritual gifts that God gave me, are those being exercised from a motivation of love and care for others? Or is it self-centered like it had become in Corinth? Has it become something ...that I use to lift myself up or to create divisions or to tear other people down. Okay, so chapter 12. If you want to just stand while we read this... ...I'm going to read chapter 12 in its entirety. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols however you were led... And the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body. So it is with Christ for in one spirit. We were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks slaves or free and all were made to drink of one spirit for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable... All rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administering, and various kinds of tongue. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a more excellent way. Let's go ahead and just read chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge... So he starts out by reminding them of what they used to be like. He said, you used to be led astray to mute idols however you were led. And I think he, he throws that out there to remind them of the contrast that, that they're supposed to be seeing in the way the church of Jesus is functioning and operating and speaking as as compared to the way they used to just be led astray to mute idols that couldn't speak to them, that didn't give them power, that, that had no real uh, lasting positive impact on their life. And he says no one speaking by the Spirit of God, in the Spirit of God, ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. This is a little bit of a tough verse, but I think he's just laying a foundation saying, What you see, the Holy Spirit always points people to Jesus. If you see Jesus in someone, it's the Holy Spirit operating in them. And anything that opposes his nature, his character, is not from the Holy Spirit. It's a simple test. What do you see coming out of a life? Because you know that the Holy Spirit is going to point to Jesus, is going to lift him up. Conversely, whatever does not, is not from the Holy Spirit. So then he goes on to tell them that it's one spirit in, in verse four through six. I love these verses. It says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all. So he, he uses three terms for God. He says, the spirit, Lord. And God, and he uses three terms speaking about what God gives to the church he says he says there are, there are varieties of gifts, but it 's the same spirit there are varieties of service, but you 're serving the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Now, I think that we we often kind of um, uh, we try to figure out what is a spiritual gift, what is actually, you know, miraculously imparted to someone through the Holy Spirit, and what's just their natural ability. And, and I, as I looked at this, I was like, it's really cool that he doesn't just say gifts. He He also says there's varieties of service. When, when we see someone serving the body, we often don't think of it l- like strictly in terms of, oh, wow, that's their spiritual. That's the Holy Spirit just really, you know pouring out through that person in service. We often don't even think of it as a spiritual gift. We might just think, wow, that person is really naturally inclined to, to be a servant to other people. But he's saying it's the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities. That's even a broader term. There's We do lots of things as the body of Christ, but it's the same God that's empowering us to do those things. And so I think as we go through this, we should not try to and and I don't I don't want to take away from from the extraordinary power of the Holy Spirit that is demonstrated in miraculous ways through the church. But I want I want to kind of get our minds away from just a narrow window of what we might consider to be a spiritual gift and see that that God is actually working in a broad sense in the body of Christ using whether it's naturally given to us by God, whether we think of it in those terms or whether it's supernaturally given to us by God, it doesn't matter. It's all it's all being done by the same God. It's God empowering the church to build the church. And it's so important that we see this. This is there's one spirit who's giving all these things to the church because that's the foundation of This unity that is brought about by the diversity of gifts that are given to the body. It's all given to the body by the spirit for the common good. And he gives the lists. He says there's word of knowledge. Some people have a word of knowledge. Some people have a word of wisdom. But it's the same spirit that gives it. Some people have faith. Maybe miracle working faith. But it's the same spirit. Some people have the gift of healings. Some people have the gift of miracles. Or prophecy to receive a word from God and to speak it to other people. Or the gift of discerning of spirits, knowing what is coming from God and knowing what's coming from an unclean source. Or the gift of tongues. Being able to communicate in different languages or speak in angelic tongues. Or the gift of interpretation of tongues so that when you hear those tongues that were given miraculously, you know what's being said even though you don't naturally know the language. But he's saying it's all coming from the same spirit. This is so important that we know this, that we understand this, that it's the same spirit that's giving this diversity of functions to the body. All these empowered by the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as they ask for. No. It says as he wills. He's giving to everyone whatever he sees you need. And listen to this. It's so that the body will be built up. It's all for the common good. It's not to lift up one person or to make you feel spiritual or to make you feel cozy about your relationship with Jesus. It's to build up the body. And as we'll see as we go down through here, if it's not doing that, then it's it's useless. It's not being used the way it was intended to be used. And then he gives an example of the physical body. Now, it's kind of hard for us to... To go from thinking about a whole bunch of different people with different personalities and different gifts and different ways of operating, different ways of thinking, to thinking about a body that just works, you know, works together very well, works uh, cohesively. All the parts are just doing what they're supposed to do, at least hopefully, most of the time. But he's saying, you guys, as the church, are like a body, just the way a body has lots of different parts. And you don't look at me standing up here and think, wow, those are some cool hands up there. You probably didn't even think about my hands one time, except maybe that I wave them around too much. But all the parts are functioning together to accomplish something. And saying, in the same way, you guys are all part of one body. Even though there's many members, so it is with Christ. Did you hear that? He says, so it is with Christ. I remember when this kind of um, jarred me. He didn't say, so it is with the body of Christ, because we often use the body of Christ kind of in our spiritual lingo to the point where we don't even think about what it means. He says, just as all the members compose one body, so it is with Christ. We here today are actually part of Christ. We're part of Jesus. We compose his body. That's why it matters. That's why what we say to each other matters. That's why the way we feel about each other matters. Because Christ is here today in the flesh through his body. And that's why it's such a terrible thing when the body starts tearing itself apart. And, and not functioning cohesively, but dividing itself and, you know, tearing itself down through words and actions and attitudes. We've all been baptized into one body. That's the, the picture of immersion, Im, being immersed into the Holy Spirit. And we all drink of the same spirit. I think that's beautiful language because it shows someone who's being completely immersed And then someone who's also drinking, who's taking into himself that, that spirit. So he's inside of us and he's surrounding us. And he is what holds us all together into one unit so that we're not just individual members. Then he goes on to show how that the body honors all the members and works together cohesively. And doesn't think that one part is less important than the other. And he says this is the way you guys should be thinking about each other as well. And there are two comparisons that he gives here. Two wrong comparisons. One is the, the, the foot doesn't say to the hand, I don't need you because your function is different. You're not like me, so I don't need you. Let me just look at where this is. Verse 14. So the foot, if the foot says to the hand, I, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any part of the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. Okay, so that's the one side where you look at someone else and you say, well, I'm different from you. I'm less significant than you. I don't have your gift, so I don't really belong. That's the one side. And then on the other side, we have the eye saying to the, to, to the hand, I don't need you. Because you're different from me. You don't have the same function as I have. You don't see things the way I see them. So I don't need you. He's saying in a physical body, you don't see this kind of this kind of discord and disagreement and and fighting about, you know, the role each member has. They just function together because they have because they have different roles. So on the one hand, we don't say because I don't have your gift because I'm not as gifted as Joe is. I'm not needed. I don't belong to the body. And on the other hand, we don't say, because you don't function the same way I do, you're not part of the body. And he uses the foot versus the hand and the ear versus the eye. The ear doesn't say to the eye that you're not part of the body because you're not the same. Have you ever heard someone say, "Um, wow, what beautiful ears she has? I don't think so. You've probably heard that about eyes. Wow, look at those eyes. And they get a lot of attention. And we're like, wow, the eyes are so amazing. They, they uh, All these light rays, different wavelengths of light come in. And in and, and, you know a tiny millisecond, we can just capture a vast amount of information with our eyes. But have you ever paid much attention to the ear? What do you think of when you think of an ear? They kind of like wax, unwanted hair. I don't know. It's like I like a lot of people don't really like their ears very much. They either stick out too far, or they're shaped a little weird. But we're just looking at that outer piece of cartilage, you know, the the auricle. That's actually kind of an insignificant part of the ear. You could you could uh, take most of this off, and you wouldn't really miss it that much, other than the the aesthetics, obviously. You might actually appreciate the way your ears looked if you removed it. But but on the inside, so there's this there's this. Uh, opening that goes in through there. And then the inner ear is actually an incredible piece of equipment. Rosetta, did you just cover this in AMP? Yeah. Okay. Maybe you should come up and tell us what the inner ear is like. (laughs) So it's really amazing. So we have this tympanic membrane, just this uh, thin membrane at the end of that, that uh, external meatus and all these sound waves. What's actually, it's just air moving. Okay. So when I'm talking, I'm just making the air move. And that air is... Those movements in the air are going all the way back to where you are. And they're going into your ear canal. And then they hit that tympanic membrane. And that membrane vibrates... And there's three little bones in there called the the, um, the auditory ossicles. There's the, the, yeah, they're really cool little bones. Very, very cool shapes. One vibrates because it's against the tympanic membrane, and it makes the next one vibrate a little more. And that bone makes the next one vibrate a little more, and it's like a little hammer, and it sits there at a place called the oval window. It's the opening to the, the cochlea, it's, it's like a, a little duct that's shaped like a snail's shell, it's just circular. And it's full, of, uh, it's full of fluid. And so that, that little uh, hammer sits there and, and vibrates against the oval window. And it sends vibrations through that fluid inside your, your inner ear. And depending on, on how fast it's vibrating or how hard it's vibrating, it's going to, to send vibrations that, that affect different parts of that little uh, canal in there. And it's going to make little hairs that are in there vibrate as well. And those hairs because they vibrate they're going to get excited and they're going to send these little nerve impulses that run all the way through your uh, uh, cranial nerve 8 all the way up to your brain and your brain gets these little electrical impulses and says ah that's that's what it's saying and it's and all this time you've been listening to me and you had no idea that that's what was going on in your inner ear and you thought the ear was just kind of whatever and and that's only half of its function you can you can pick up a phone and hear a voice, and you can, in a split second, recognize a voice out of 10,000 voices, if you're familiar with that voice, just based on tiny, tiny little nuances of sound. That's incredible. And then the other half of the function is is your sense of equilibrium, your balance. You have the vestibule and, and uh, three semicircular canals that go out in three different directions, and there's fluid inside those, those uh, curved canals. And so when I move my head this way, the fluid kind of stays where it's at. And it shifts depending on where I move it, in three dimensions. And it tells me whether I'm balanced. That's why I can walk around here. If that malfunctions, you, get, you can get terribly sick. It can destroy your life if it malfunctions. And yet we, we hardly ever give thought to this unless something goes wrong. We just take it for granted that those parts are all in there. They're doing their job. And they don't care that it's not seeing like the eye is seeing. Because that's not what they're designed to do. They're designed to hear. And in the same way, there are parts of the body of Jesus that are seeing things that you and I aren't seeing. And there are parts that are hearing things that you and I are not hearing. And we're not supposed to be looking at each other and say, well, I don't like the way you function because you function differently than me. You must not be part of the body or you must be less important. In fact, it's the parts that are not seen, the parts that we often overlook that that maybe have the most important functions that are helping the body to function together cohesively as a unit And he wants us, God wants us to think of ourselves as a single unit rather than as a bunch of isolated members. Because you know what happens when you have an eye that's all by itself? In a couple of days, it will be rotting tissue. It's useless. In fact, you take an eye out of the head and it is completely useless instantly. It has no more function. It has to be attached to the body, functioning with the other parts to do its job, to do its God-given role. You know, we used to think that there was lots of vestigial organs, like uh, organs that were, well, from a Darwinistic perspective, it was leftovers of evolution, kind of. They, didn't, they don't really have a function anymore. The list used to be more than a hundred parts of your body that you just don't really need. They're just kind of leftovers, and they're there. And as we discover their roles, we figure out that some of those are actually really important. And the list is down to basically zero. And the ones that are still on the verge are there because we, don't, we just haven't figured it out. We're not smart enough to figure out what everything is doing. We used to think there's junk DNA, these DNA segments that don't really have a role, and there's pseudogenes and... Um, all these vestigial organs, and we're discovering that God actually put all of that stuff there for a specific function. Sometimes its function isn't obvious, but it's there and it's doing its job quietly for the health and the good of the entire body. We need to understand this so that there will be no division in the body and i think this is so relevant today in our individualistic society where we don't really need each other that much we're not a tight community like you might have seen you know a couple of hundred years ago where people were subsistence farmers and really depending on each other in their communities for support and for protection we can just kind of live our lives and go about our ways and, and do what we want. And if we don't like the way the people are here, we can move on and find another church and, you know, go somewhere else where where we like the way people are. But we need each other. We need each other just as much as they did 200 years ago or a thousand years ago. Maybe more so as the day approaches So then he gives the list in verse 27. He says, we're all members of the body of Christ, each one members in particular, and we don't all have the same function. This is important to understand, not just that, yeah, we all work together and we get along nicely, but we don't all have the same function. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, my employer had a consulting uh, Firm come in where they did personality tests, um, had everybody do a fairly comprehensive work related personality test before they came up. And then they came up and they sat down with uh, with us as employees and they said, "Okay, now you you have this strength here in this area. You probably operate like this. You think like this. Um, Whereas this employee over here thinks this way very, very differently but this is how you guys can actually complement each other. And what we perceive to be weaknesses in other people are usually part of their strengths. And um, I had a fellow employee, and it wasn't Abby, <laughs> who would come to, into my office. And, and he's incredibly visionary. Big picture. Okay, everybody knows. It's Tanner. So he'd come into my office, and he's incredibly visionary, big picture. I'm, I'm just often astonished at the way he can see big picture and see you know, potential over here that, that I would completely miss. But I would have a stack of papers like neatly arranged on my desk, you know, and, and he would come in, and as he's talking, he would kind of shuffle those papers around, and then he'd leave. And it kind of annoyed me at first, and then I realized that is part of his strength. When, when we have a new project or a, a new potential business venture, he'll just jump into it. And not everything has to be perfect before he jumps into it. Whereas I want the details, you know, make, make sure that the details all line up and what if it's not the best decision and I'm there second-guessing myself and, and my perfectionism is holding me back. And I could never fill his role because of that. He does a wonderful job at it because he doesn't care whether all the details are, are exact or not. And together, I think we made a pretty good team. I, I don't know, Abby. What do you think? So, so we often look at the, <laughs> we often look at the different ways that other people function. We're like, I don't like that because that's not the way I think. It doesn't make sense from my perspective. But what if we looked at the way someone else functions? It's very different from the way I think and function. We say, that's really awesome. That, that here in this body, we have. That aspect, we have that point of view that's so different from mine. And we start looking at how that can strengthen other points of view when they work together cohesively. Instead of letting that tension kind of build in ourselves until we just really don't like the person because they're different from us. We don't all have the same function. He says, God set in the body first apostles Second, prophets, and there does seem to be an order that he's giving here. Third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrations, tongues, and interpretation of tongues. And he says, you guys should all be desiring the higher gifts. And we're going to see in chapter 14 how that some gifts do maybe have a more prominent role in building up the body than others. And how that the Corinthians had gotten some of those backwards because... Not because they had just figured out which gifts were uh, more important than others, but because they were using their spiritual gifts to elevate themselves rather than to build the body. If our focus shifts from the health of the body, from what is good for the body, to how can my gift be prominent and how can it be exercised in cool ways, it's going to start being destructive instead of building up. And that's why. Chapter 13 got stuck in here because he says, I'm going to show you a more excellent way. There's something that's more excellent even than these supernatural gifts of the spirit that are working together in diversity. And he says, if you if you can speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but you don't have love, you've been reduced to a a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If you have prophetic powers, but you don't have love, your prophetic powers are useless. If you have knowledge, so that you can understand all mysteries, that sounds like wisdom, so you might have the gift of a word of knowledge or a gift of wisdom, but if it's not accompanied by love, if it's not motivated by love, it's nothing. If you have faith, faith, the kind that can move mountains, that can accomplish great things in the kingdom. But it's not coming out of love. It's nothing. Even if you give yourself up in sacrificial service to others, Mother Teresa style, you give it all away. You give everything up. You give up your body to be burned. If it's not being motivated by love, you are nothing. Nothing. And there's such a beautiful test here that we can hold up against our lives or hold our lives up against to see are my gifts being exercised, being motivated out of love? Because if not, they're actually going to become destructive instead of constructive. And I'll just say, looking at this, I was convicted because I saw where there have been times where. Genuinely, I think God gave me a, a gift spiritually, but I exercised it in a wrong way because it was not motivated by love. And the result is destructive rather than constructive. Love is patient and kind. Has your spiritual perception made you unkind? It doesn't envy or boast. Has your insight, your knowledge made you boastful? Love isn't irritable or resentful or rude. Has your service to others, even your sacrificial service to others, created resentment in you? Then it needs to be checked by this test of love. I see that actually in people who have a gift of service. It's easy for them just to become slaves to that gift and really pour into other people. And then they begin to become resentful or cynical because... The payback isn't what it should be. It's just often the way it is. It's unfortunate, but it can easily create cynicism and resentment in us. But that's not love. Love gives sacrificially and it doesn't become cynical or resentful or rude as a result. Love doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. Maybe you have the gift of discernment and you can discern whether something is coming from God or whether it's coming from an unclean source. But... How do you respond when you discern between good and evil? Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. It grieves over it and it wants to see people restored. Love bears all things, it believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You see, right now we're living in the imperfect, we see just very limited little segments of reality. We see only little bits of truth. It doesn't matter how discerning we are. What we see is just a tiny little slice of reality. It's the imperfect that we're living in. Even if you have a great gift of prophecy, it's just a tiny little slice of what's there. Even if you have a lot of wisdom and discernment, it's just a tiny measure of what God sees because he sees the big picture. And we're living in this this time of seeing dimly. It's like a like a brass mirror where the image that it reflects is not perfect. But all of these gifts that the Spirit is imparting to the church to build up the church, they're temporary. Why? Because the imperfect is going to pass away. And when the perfect has come, then all of this, our... our Little bits of wisdom that we think we have, our knowledge, our discernment, our gifts of miracles, our ability to communicate in unknown tongues, whatever it is. It's all going to be melted into reality, into the perfect when we see God the way he really is and we for the first time ever understand Truly understand the depths of God and his wisdom and his goodness and his love. Then prophecy, there's not going to be a need for prophecy because nobody's going to know in part. Everybody's going to understand it because we're going to see it. There's not going to be a need for a gift of wisdom or discernment or knowledge or miracles because it's all going to be consumed by the perfection of being in God's presence and knowing him the way that he knows us so maturity in the body is seeing this seeing that even the gifts that we're given by the holy spirit yes they're real and yes we should honor them in each other and call them out and cultivate them and nurture them and we're going to see that more in chapter 14 next week i'm looking forward to that but even as we do that we should realize This is just, it's a dim view of reality. It's just very partial. It's very small. And when the perfect has come, the imperfect, the partial, the little slices of knowledge, the sampling of gifts that we steward now, they're all going to give way to, to that perfection. And that's what we should all be looking forward to. So if someone gets under your skin because of the way they're exercising their gift, Look forward to that time when we're all going to be made perfect because right now we're not yet. Sometimes we take even the gift that God genuinely gives us and we exercise in a wrong way or we speak words that are hurtful, unnecessarily hurtful, or we're just clumsy with our gifts. That's why we need to forbear. That's why it all needs to be conditioned by love and tested by love because one day that's all that's going to be left is love.